Hi, you're listening to the Just Some Musings podcast with Justin Lee and Marcus Muse. We're two advisors with CG Wealth Management in Alberta who finish off our weeks connecting over Zoom to discuss the week that was. Any charts or links that we refer to, as well as an archive of past podcasts, can be found at muse.ca slash podcast. Please enjoy our largely unedited and unfiltered discussion for the week. All right, so it's been a week now since the uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, going under. I found this week to be very educational, the weekend, last weekend. So we recorded last week talking about what was going on that day, and that day the FDIC was already uh, taking control of the bank, and we saw over the weekend what happened. Uh, Basically, FDIC insurance in the U.S. now pretty much is unlimited, apparently. More news this week, uh, Credit Suisse uh, having some difficulties, and of course there the Swiss government sort of has been backstopping them. So lots going on, and it's you know it's educational. I wouldn't say this is something to be uh, you know freaking out about. Uh, it's not uh, something that should really weigh into anyone's investment strategy if they're invested for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things simply happen. You look at the long-term return of the of the markets, and those long-term returns included lots of happenings like this. But the educational thing is, you know, we always talk about CDIC insurance in Canada, and uh, um, and I mean that's been a, a thing ever since I started at the bank. Uh, you know, does this have is the CDIC insured? How much is the coverage? When I started the bank, we just went from sixty thousand uh, coverage to one hundred thousand per issuer, mm-hmm. and um, and it, you know, it was always a sort of a theoretical concern that what happens if the bank goes under? Is my is my deposit insured? And of course, it's never happened in Canada that that a major bank went under. And what we also see through this process is when when banks go under, the first thing that happens usually is FDIC in this case comes in and tries to find a buyer. Uh, to this day, they're still trying to find a buyer for Silicon Valley Bank. Um, they found a buyer back in the great financial crisis. Washington Mutual went under. They found a buyer for them, found a buyer for Wachovia. Mm-hmm. So depositors didn't lose their uninsured deposits. It would be a very extreme case where that might happen, where maybe all the banks fail at the same time, and the government can't really do much about it. You know, last Anyways, weekend, it's been an interesting yeah, week. It has been. Um, <clears throat> I, I admit that last weekend, I, I was sort of checking my Twitter feed and the news feed to see what was going on, <laughs> some of the updates as they were happening, uh, some of the... Uh, the cries or the pleads of, of, of uh, help uh, coming from the rooftops from some particular uh, vocal uh, participants. and <laughs> Lots and of then, prima donnas in Silicon yeah, Valley there. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I guess we'll, I want to talk a little bit about that. But uh, but then, you know, I was going through my weekend, you know, things. My, uh, you know, kids programming, sports programming, whatnot, see some relatives and, and some friends. And, and uh, nobody asked anything about it. And, and I think that gave me some context. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, by sa- Saturday afternoon, I was like, I'm, I'm not, not going to look at the news. Like, you know, it, it, they'll, there's, it's constantly changing. By Monday morning, there'll be a major announcement, most likely. And, and then we'll see what happens afterwards. And yeah. um, it, it made the weekend uh, go, um, run a lot smoother. And I would say even Monday morning, this past Monday, when, uh, you know, when, when the news came out with the, uh, with the actions from, um, uh, from the banks and such, that uh, still very little, uh, if any, uh, sort of queries in regards to what's going on with, with it and how does that uh, impact things. And I think you sort of addressed it. In, in, on the day-to-day, might there be some news headlines, but over the long term, it, it really is so much to do about nothing, if I could actually trivialize it in some form. And mm-hmm. uh, and so yes, the, this will this will you know this too shall pass in some ways. But I think it does cause to, for us to pause uh, uh, to step back and, and think about some of the things that have caused that caused the issue uh, or caused the the, the the news item over the past week, and just kind of t- take a self reflection either within our own how we uh, look at things and and how we might actually maybe potentially readjust our, our behavior or our thoughts uh, because a lot of what happened last weekend was really behavior. It wasn't so much the the debt or the indebtedness mm-hmm. of it. It was actually just the behavior uh, of, of of the people around it. So um, one thing for, for certain that I thought about, we talked about the VCs, the venture capitalists out of, out of uh, California. 
And so Silicon Valley Bank, you know, they were very much attuned to that world. You know, part of the reason for their, their past success was that they were able to cater to a very specific niche that was often either overlooked or was not considered uh, bankable by a, large of the other, a lot of the other major institutions. And, and so this would be, for example, you know, a lot of times banks uh, would be able would lend you money based on your assets. It could be your home. Uh, it could be your business. It could be wells or, or, or uh, you know, your, your reserve report underneath the ground. They needed some assets for, you, for them to say, okay, we'll lend you money. Uh, for those in the knowledge or the, you know, the tech industry, a lot of it was IP. A lot of it was intangible, uh, intangible goods and intangible assets. And so a lot of the other large banks would kind of shy away from that. And so then Silicon Valley came mm -hmm. in and, and certainly helped them out and helped that ecosystem kind of develop and grow over time. So they were a very important partner uh, to a lot of the uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, the that community. Just as much as, for example, like again, um, I'll use ATB as an example, based in Alberta, probably have a very mm -hmm. good understanding of the energy business in, in, in Alberta, um, able to understand the, uh, the unique characteristics of that sector, are able to then bank for them understanding those risks and also some of the rewards as well. But and CWB as well, CWB and they, they bear those risks, of course. Yeah, they of bear course. those risks and that reflects on the stock price often is that they, they have that concentration risk in Alberta and in particular industry. That's right, CAS out of Quebec, you know, they're very much attuned with the Quebec uh, uh, industries, right? And, and the community mm -hmm. there, right? So um, regional banks have their, have their uh, you know, have their benefits, they have their causes and they have, um, they've been able to successfully for most of the time, uh, be able to cater to their, their niche. Um, it's just that when that niche all of a sudden on mass changes, that's when we, mm -hmm. we got into this issue that happened last week. So one of the things that came up was that when you talk about that ecosystem in, in San Francisco, was that a lot of the venture capitalists then invested in a various a multitude of other companies. And oftentimes, you know, like anything, there's going to be common shareholders. There's going to be common backwards, uh, backers. Uh, one VC might be invested in five companies, and then another VC might be invested in 10 others. But of those 10, some of them are going to be the same companies that the first VC invested in. So they're all talking to each other. They had their own chat groups. They had their own, you know, uh, meetup groups. And, and they're all buddies and, and friends. And they all were partners or previous colleagues. So very much intertwined with each other. So ironically, or when you take a step back, when you think about it, you may have had hundreds, if not thousands of, of companies that had money deposited at Silicon Valley Bank, and thus tens, if not hundreds of thousands of employees potentially with their assets, uh, some of their assets in that bank as well. But they were all kind of sort of the same, cut from the same cloth. They're all from the same community. They were all with the same influencers. They were all within the same um, ecosystem. And, and because of that, when all of a sudden those big backers or some very, uh, I would say important or respected uh, spokespersons uh, of that industry all of a sudden say, oh, we should start pulling out our money. Then it's not just actually one person pulling their money out or one company pulling their money out. It was hundreds of companies pulling all their money out at the exact same time or, mm -hmm. you know, and billions of dollars taken out in, in a 24 hour period or 12 hour period. And so there, that concentration that worked well for Silicon Valley Bank at the time for it to grow, to get those deposits, to be able to work with the with all the different kind of banking relationships they had with their clientele, all of a sudden they got the, the back end of it where the, all those clients all of a sudden acted the same way and pulled it all, a significant chunk of it all out at the same time, causing that bank run. And it made me really kind of think about, you know, your, uh, we, we often think about diversity or, uh, you know, uh, diversification uh, within our own portfolios. And even within businesses, there are pros and cons to be focused on one particular niche. Uh, but in this case, that niche, that over-concentration of one particular geography, one particular sector, uh, one and, mm -hmm. and it, it really came out to uh, affect them. And so it just made me think about 
an impact on how we could use that lesson for ourselves, for our own portfolios, and even for the underlying companies that we may look to analyze and say, is that a good company? But oh, guess what? They're overly concentrated with one set of or one type of clientele. Yeah, something I remember from my days at the bank, um, and I was never in commercial banking or small business banking. I was just sort of a, well, first very frontline bank employee. Then I was the, uh, you know, quote unquote financial advisor, basically personal banker. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, I was doing the occasional small business loan for people. Almost always they were declined because it was usually, you know, some little basket weaving company or something looking for a small loan. And they have them, they themselves had very low credits. Uh, you know, at that, you know, for those types of clients, it's always based on personal credit. And even for more, for larger clients too, those types of loans are based on personal credit. But uh, we had a small business banker in our in our branch. And I remember they were, they were doing a fairly substantial loan for a, uh, it was a gas station. And I, I don't remember where or what, but it was a gas station. And, you know, it seemed everything was going fine. And of course, you know, when it comes to the credit application, you know, the same stuff applies. People have to have good, uh, what are the three C's? Character, credibility, and... I forget the other one. Collateral? Capacity. 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 <laughs> and, well, yeah, and collateral, too. I guess maybe there's four Cs. So everything was fine with this loan. They were good creditors. And in the last step of everything, the loan, the loan was ready to go. The last step, it was declined. And what happens at the bank, they mm -hmm. have sort of a, a level of oversight that looks at how much exposure does the bank have through its small business banking channels, commercial banking channels, to various different industries, sectors, whatever. Already. And they have certain capacities to of how much they will have. And so mm -hmm. what ended up being is the, the bank itself had loaned too much or it had already reached its capacity for uh, gas stations in Edmonton. Maybe okay. that was the category. Mm -hmm. And so just for that reason, they declined it. And so, you know, the banks are doing this, which is good. You know, it's good, good risk management. Um, unfortunate that, you know, um, you know, it is, it is always hard for small businesses to get borrowing to begin with. And that mm -hmm. this is an extra little impediment, mm -hmm. but of course, yeah, you have some specialty banks. I'm sure that client ended up getting that loan somewhere else at another major bank that wasn't at its maximum for gas stations in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe they went to ATB or Canadian Western bank, which are, you know, in this industry or in this region are, uh, you know, they focus on small businesses in, in Alberta. Yes, Silicon Valley Bank obviously had its niche. And this wasn't like a new pop-up company that just popped up in the last no. couple of years. It's been around since 1983. Um, I first read about it actually in a book by, uh, oh, I forget what the book was called, but it was a whole history of Silicon Valley. Um, they've been there, um, you know, through various uh, cycle yeah. runs as well, right? And they've seen it before. Yeah. Uh, and, and presumably in the and past, they were, they've been able to survive until today. They were a major cog, really, in, in the financing of, you know, they weren't, they weren't the venture capitalists that were providing the billions of dollars of financing per se, but they were providing small loans and, of course, the banking for these companies. And basically now they're gone. Um, you know, if they're an FDIC, what do they call it, an FDIC deposit corp or something, it, but they're not doing, they're not doing loans, I don't think. Uh, they're not going to be, you know, big players in Silicon Valley. And it really kind of gives a warning to other banks, you know, being a niche, a niche bank doesn't, doesn't uh, pay off. You want to you want to have your business diversified, and they say in our industry too. You know, the the most successful financial advisors are people who have niches, um, or niches, as the uh, U.S. Uh, practice management people always say. Mm -hmm. uh, and that you know that that is true. You you have an issue. You focus on a certain type of client that can be very very uh, very advantageous. Mm -hmm. uh, like you, you, Justin, you have a niche in uh, sort of uh, people working in the ener energy industry, right? Well, in, in some senses, um, but in the sense is because having past experience in there, having one foot, yep. having lived in a life in that world, you are, you know, ideally you, you're able to kind of not only empathize, but understand some of the inner machinations, machinations mm -hmm. of, of, you know, compensation and, and the cyclicality of that business in particular, right? 
Um, but yeah, there's it's not a hard niche. No, like ahead. it's not a hard niche where you don't take any other clients on or you right. only focus on those. Because if you're in a business that way, yeah, maybe if things go well, you'd be very, very successful doing that. However, what did we see in the last couple of years? 2020, energy industry goes poof. 2014, it went poof. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be, you want to be too, uh, you know, as a financial advisor, be or a bank or whatever, to be too exposed to just one particular industry. And you know, which they all go through their cycles. They will again. So they will again. Um, but yeah, that's that's obviously what Silicon Valley really did them in. But you know, having survived for decades previously and having gone through and survived, you know, the the huge tech crash of the at the turn of the century, you know, what changed? You know, what was the major difference this year? Uh, and, and and what I've heard some arguments is that essentially that they didn't have Twitter <laughs> and WhatsApp yeah. twenty years ago. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, when one person says, I'm, I'm thinking about taking my money out and texts it to his entire chat group, instantly, they're also thinking, maybe I'll do the same thing. And then they can all do it online, digitally as well. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, you know, the infrastructure obviously wasn't quite, the digital infrastructure wasn't set up so that you could take out, you, you kind of had to sort of stay in line and, and wait in, in a lot of ways, right? And that kind of made things yeah. a little bit more manageable and you didn't have, $25 billion go out the door overnight, right? It might've been I half a billion, hundreds of millions, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, th I think that that could be part of it. I think another part of it, of course, is just the extent to how much money flowed into them in the, in the previous years, prior years. Yes. And and them also like not having, not being able to find very, I guess, safe ways or very uh, useful ways to, uh, to either invest that money or lend it out again. And of course they made some mistakes in their investing of that money. Sure. And then, and then just how capital dried up so quickly and, and of course, causing not a bank run necessarily, but a, a trickle of money out the door over the last year or so, um, as those businesses, those 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 venture startups, um, started using their money, but not didn't come in with new venture capital money because that yes. money was no longer flowing. Yes. Yeah, now the same thing happened in two thousand, but maybe it was just not quite as extreme. The bond market didn't get the uh, the big upheaval that back then that it did over the last year. So that was a factor. There's really I think maybe there's three factors. There's that the venture capital flows. There's the what happened in the bond market. Um, and there is, um, like you said, communication is, is much more rapid nowadays. And add a fourth factor, I think a little bit of um, sleaze <laughs> in terms of what they were doing. Um, you know, and that's still maybe alleged, but uh, still kind of coming out in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, why did the uh, CEO sell all those shares? Why did everyone get bonuses not too long ago? Yeah. And was what they're doing, you know, buying a lot of 10-year bonds, long-dated bonds, mortgage-backed securities, was that maybe a, uh, an unjustifiable stretch for yield? just being less careful with money no that's Creed. right that's right and and well there'll be certainly the documentaries and the stories that come in the books yeah, that come they'll be interesting uh, in the coming uh months, i can't wait. years uh, about it all right <laughs> uh, but that goes back you know it makes me think about again like the underlying investments although you know there was a misalignment of uh duration right their liabilities versus their 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 assets and how they uh constructed their their own internal portfolio but they were mostly in like U.S. Treasuries. You know, this is the, among considered the most safest of, of safe safe harbors in the world. U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. And had they just held them on, this is the classic. Oh, I'm going to hold on to my bond until maturity, and I'll get my money. I'll get my coupon, uh, my interest rate over the years, and then I'll get my face value of my bond back again at the end of it. And the the, the U.S. government is generally uh, has been good with that, paying it back in full. Hence, hence the safety. So had they were able, were they able to hold on to these things for ten years? And yeah, they probably they would have been able to survive, but they all started taking the money out. So maybe think about the, the, the depositors. Going back to a little bit, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll, we'll park the management for a second, right, for a bit, but think about mm -hmm. the depositors themselves who put the money in. These are people who immediately said, these guys bank us, they know us, they know who, they are us, right? They, we are, mm -hmm. you know, they're our partner. But then equally in a partnership, you know, the depositors also are, you know, 
have some blame to this, I, I think, because they're the ones who took the money out. Had they not taken their money out, the bank probably would have survived. They would just have, would have had to deal with their, you know, their, their different durations and, and their cash flow or their, so their, their liabilities. Uh, but it probably would have been able to be managed in some form um, without the whole bank uh, going, uh, going under. And, and so it, I, I saw a quote, and, and I'll read it to you. And it was from the Financial Times. And one of the, um, one of the executives of Silicon Valley Bank, actually in an interview to the FT, said, quote, it turned out that one of the biggest risks to our business model was catering to a very tightly knit group of investors who exhibit herd-like mentality. And so mm -hmm. I just maybe take a step back. It's like, oh, you know what? Yes, the management did whatever the management did. They made the decisions that they did. But also the depositors, this massive group of, of, of fish or sheep or whatever analogy you'd like to use, this herd, all of a sudden just decided that I'm taking it out. If they were equally good partners in that banking relationship, then they probably would have, they should have kept that money in the bank and then they still wouldn't have had to change their bank accounts, and right? Uh, this I think, you know, I think, uh, yeah, you're, you're totally right about there. And I don't think they really wanted to, nobody wanted ill will for this this company, SVB, which had been around for so long and had been such a major player. But at the same time, balance that out with, you know, you're running this business, you have X number of employees, you got to make payroll, you want to make your, your, your dreams come to fruition, whatever, <clears throat> yes. your, whatever your business does. And that fear, I mean, yes. I think totally superseded any type of caring about you know what the fate was of Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, your existential crisis so. is more important than the other person's existential crisis, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I just looked up some numbers just as you were talking here. Just what if what if the exact same scenario happened in the year two thousand, which was the previous time when mm -hmm. you know we went from this this boom in in uh, in technology and, and venture capital and all that, and then a bust. Uh, so. The numbers I was able to find here, five-year U.S. Treasury note performance uh, year by year. Uh, for 2022, uh, five-year U.S. Treasuries returned negative 9.4%. So keep in mind that a lot of what they had was a bit longer dated, yep. so more like 10 year. 10 years. But even the five-year had a negative 9.4% uh, return in 2022. We go back to that time period, and, uh, and you know the bust back then was the beginning of the year 2000. Uh, can you guess what the return was of five-year Treasuries in the year 2000? Let's call it three percent. Plus twelve point six percent. Twelve, nice. That's not a bad place to park some money. The year after that, seven point six. The year after that, twelve point nine. The year after that. So that was a time when you know we were still in this really long forty-year interest rate cycle that was on the decline, where rates were on the decline and the value of bonds went up. And so, if the exact same scenario happened back then, they would have had no problem. Okay, sell some of the bonds, make some gains, yep. hook some capital gains, yep. and uh, pay out the depositors, no issues. But this was a very unique situation with the the rapid increase of uh, of interest rates uh, from a from a generational low. The last time this happened, the way it did was, uh, and I'm going back quite a ways. I look at 20 year bonds um, to look at the real extreme situation. The 20 year bond index net last year negative 26 percent. The last time we saw such a big turnaround was really in uh, not even the 70s. And in the 70s, what you had happening was interest rates rose, but they rose from a higher starting point. So the coupon from those bonds was able to make up for uh, that decline. In the, in but the uh, really, value. probably the last, yeah, the last big turnaround was probably maybe in a similar situation, the late 1960s. That was also a period, you know, remember the first wave of the, of the semiconductor or <clears throat> the microprocessor or whatever. Uh, that that development all happened in the 1960s, and then the first bust happened in the 1970s of, of Silicon Valley. They went through the exact same thing back then. It was the 1970s were the dark period, the 2000s were a dark period, and probably the next 10 years are a dark period for them. It's half but, a century uh, back ago. Then even, yeah, back then even, <laughs> and that was also when interest rates turned around, they were negative 9% that year, 1967. Uh -huh. um, so nothing was really quite as extreme as this past year when it comes to bonds. 
No, it, it's been certainly uh, unique in the sense of our, our, our most recent uh, memory or lifespans. And, but it has happened, but, it, you know, like 50-odd-plus uh, years ago. These, these are not frequent occurrences, even though, actually, banks do fail. They, you know, I think they saw a number of something on the order of, like, 880-odd days since the last time a bank had failed in the United States. Um, but it, they do fail, and sometimes they're very small little credit union or little local mm-hmm. community banks, right? And uh, they're barely a blip. Uh, and it doesn't even catch or capture the news outside of maybe the town or the locale that they're in. Uh, but they, those happen a little bit more frequently than some people may suspect. So, you know, one of the questions that comes up. And when up, they fail, yeah. when they fail, do depositors lose their money? Rarely. Usually not. If, if anything, maybe like 96 cents they get back on their dollar, 90 odd cents. So the haircut yeah. on the depositors is, is, is uh, um, somewhat manageable, but it's not zero, certainly. If it is, yeah. And, you know, in most cases, too, this is the difference with Silicon Valley Bank is the depositors were mostly businesses with large deposits in the millions and in some cases, I think even billions. Um, whereas, you know, small regional banks, mom and pops, they probably don't have much more than the 250000 in a checking savings account that the FDIC covers. Certainly. But also, usually, you, got, you know, you got those, uh, the, the, the FDIC arranges a takeover. Yes. And often there's some other bigger bank happy to take over that deposit base. Um, and they get a discount on that. And then the depositors are made 100% whole. The last time I believe there was really a significant, like massive losses by depositors was the 1930s. And that was when they created FDIC, uh, 1934, I think, or thereabouts, in the 30s. A lot of stuff happened in the 1930s, interestingly. SEC, FDIC, the Federal Reserve, I think, was started in the 1930s too. So They all came out of yeah, the crisis, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there hasn't been, there haven't been massive disasters since. No. Um, and again, the news cycle is such that where it does come up now, um, it does magnify things. And uh, news that comes out of you know a, a certain city in California seems to make major impact or seemingly uh, hits mm-hmm. the front headlines uh, in, in in Alberta, which you know or and, really. And when there's certain Twitter profiles with like a million followers tweeting <laughs> things, of course everyone listens, right? For those that are listening, yes. And and for the vast majority, like I said, to my personal experience last weekend, uh, where the vast majority do not. Uh, either could not care uh, or realize that you know what it's 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 going to roll over. Um, that's probably uh, not a bad way to to treat uh, something of this nature, right? I mean, you and I you obviously want to be involved, understanding what's going on in the situation, potential impacts of it uh, to uh, an investment, for example. But for you know a general layman, it, it's not a, it's not a big deal. Nobody that I know has a, a bank account at Silicon Valley Bank, for example, or even First Republic yeah. or any of those banks. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, one of the learnings too is be diversified uh, yeah. in your portfolio, and this is this is exactly why. Um, when we look at uh, something like the uh, the U.S. banking index, the financial uh, uh, index, they were down a fair bit in the last couple of days. Um, just looking it up on my on my screen here right now. All the banks, um, even the Canadian banks, have been, especially the Canadian banks that have U.S. exposure or U.S. Uh, operations. Yep. Uh, all, Royal Bank, uh, TD, uh, they've all traded down in sentiment. Where even though, like you know, as I mentioned, uh, their core clientele is is not in Cal- Northern California. Mm-hmm. And I mean, can any anyone have predicted that? I don't know. I mean, if, if, if there's certain things, you know, one can have looked at uh, the, the uh, small regional banks in the U.S. and sort of said, yeah, they're a little bit undercapitalized. What if there's a bank run? Maybe we should not have too much exposure there. But, um, you know, the big banks in Canada, they're pretty secure, but they were obviously down a fair bit in the last week or so. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is, A, you can't predict this stuff when it happens, whether it happens to the banking industry or whether, you know, what happens to be uh, 2014 and, uh, and the Saudis start pumping a lot of oil into the, into the market and the oil price plummets, or whether there's a, it's just a massive tech bubble bursting. That what we do as investors is we diversify and we just don't have all our eggs in one basket. 
Unfortunately, when it happens to financials, it hurts us more because we typically tend to have more in financials. Just even owning the index, you end up having more in financials, especially as a Canadian investor. Particularly. Because the, the big banks make up such a big piece of that pie. Actually, I would uh, say what, the United States is a bit of an anomaly because when you think about, you know, how the still to this day, mm -hmm. the tech sector is still the largest, I, the general tech sector. Forget about communications and this and that, like the yep. big tech sector names that we all know about, right? Um, they are still the largest uh, component of the S&P uh, or the, you know, the, the broad U.S. index. But when you look at almost every yep. other country in the world, it's the financials because the financials kind of drive the economy. They're essential in any economy. Yep. And, and so the U.S. in some ways is actually is an anomaly relative to the rest of the world, including Canada, right? Yeah, looking at the uh, the U.S. all cap index, even after the decline in uh, technology stocks over the last year, uh, technology still makes up 24% of that index. In financials? And that's just what's defined as technology. Yes. Um, technology, if you include Apple, or sorry, Apple's part of technology, if you include things like Amazon and mm -hmm. Meta, that number grows even more. Um, yeah, financials in the U.S. make up only 14%. And in Canada, um, we're north like a quarter, right? I was looking at the international index first, international mm -hmm. developed markets in Europe, banks are pretty big. Um, there they make up 17%, one seven. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada, just have a look here, uh, Canadian all cap, financial services, 33%. Yeah, it's a and third. that's why we feel, exactly. If you look at the uh, performance of uh, you know, TSX Composite in the last couple of days here, or the last week, um, compared to the US, of course, nothing has done well, but yeah. um, so it's Friday morning as we look at this. And if I look at start of this month, the TSX down 4.33%. While the S&P 500 is uh, down one percent, basically, and all of that, and, and and consider the fact that all of this is sort of has originated in the United States, right? Well, yeah. So. Consider all the bad news that's coming out of there. You haven't heard of any Canadian banks failing. <laughs> no. But uh, the fact of the matter is, our our, uh, our sorry, our markets uh, are are so dominated by those big banks, and that's just something you have to be mindful of when you're constructing a portfolio. And uh, mm -hmm. my uh, sort of rule of thumb, and I always hate rule of thumbs, but I just kind of think of it as in terms of diversification, how much should you have in every one sector? And there's like, what is it, 13 sectors? They're called the gig sectors. There is, there's really no guideline. Like, the, there's no, you have to have this much in basic materials and this mm -hmm. much in, uh, in uh, consumer defensive. But uh, when I think of situations that I've been through in my career, like this, like the great financial crisis, like the tech bubbles bursting in 2000 and more recently, uh, I just don't want to have more than 20% in any one sector ever. And if it ever gets to the point where that just that sector grows and becomes a bigger part of the pie, as happened with technology through the you know 2020, 2021, it's time to rebalance. It's, it's time to trim that. And usually everyone does the opposite. They get excited about that sector. Everyone wants to buy technology stocks in 2021. Everyone wanted to buy energy stocks in uh, 2014 and 20, uh, 2022. 2008. <laughs> maybe, you know, the, maybe now so too. Yeah. The running joke here in Calgary, you know, is that diversification. <laughs> you know, you got. 25% in energy in oil, you got 25% in natural gas, you got 25% in pipelines, and you got 25% in oil field services, right? That's diversification. Yeah, Calgary diversification. And you own a house in Calgary that goes up and down with the price of oil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, it's I, probably I, not much different if it's uh, if you're a California investor, Northern California investor, you're diversifying between technology, communication services, consumer discretionary, and uh, yeah. what does that leave? <laughs> a little bit of social media, a little bit of semiconductors, a little bit of search. You're looking at the subcategories right. and you're diversifying a little bit of e across those. That's right, yeah. And you're ESG, so you're going to avoid energy completely out of your portfolio, and you're going to avoid all mining. So you're avoiding materials, and then you know you're you're not diversified. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of at a high level what we can look at. You and I, our, our clients as well, when we look at our own uh, portfolios, is that you know what is the right appropriate diversification for you in your situation, in your job, in your uh, uh, locale, things of that nature, right? Um, and you're right. There's there's a million different ways where you can, can where you can make those. Uh, um, 
those weightings, right? Um, but I think the point of diversification, um, obviously, it holds true. Um, you are not going to, you know, you will go market. And, and I know that you are a particular a proponent of, of uh, index funds and, and things of that nature. And, and this part of answers it. That, yeah, you might in that index fund in, in, in inevitably own, you know, that bank that went under, right? But it might only have mm -hmm. been, you know, half a percent of the, if that, or maybe 02 percent of the overall index right um but then you have the others that kind of come in and offset it you will get also the winners as well i will say honest to god i'm raising my hand and swearing to god every single almost every single one of my clients had silicon valley bank in their portfolio and first republic <laughs> and probably sbny as well but in tiny tiny allocations indirectly yes because uh, they're diversified in everything you own something like the u.s all cap index fund you you own it uh, but you know getting to your point uh, combining index funds we have a really awesome opportunity here in canada and nowadays, you don't see it as much that people are invested entirely in Canada. There was a real home country bias back in like 2000. Well, if you go back to 2010, thereabouts after the financial crisis, because Canadian stocks did so well. And people thought, why would I invest elsewhere? The U.S. Mm -hmm. did, did horribly. Um, but now, you know, you look at those, those sectors, how they're allocated. And you got this, uh, this Canadian fund that is 11% materials, 33% financials, 16% um, energy. And you combine it with, and, and actually it has like 0% healthcare, it has 6% technology, very little in consumer stocks. Combine it with this wonderful index in the US, the US all cap, which is light on materials, light on energy, light on financials, heavy on technology, heavy on consumer stocks. Um, they, they, work, they work so well together. And then you add some Europe to the mix too, and you got uh, uh, maybe a bit more in healthcare that way, you know, consumer big, discretionary uh, giants. Combine it all together and you've got a pretty well diversified portfolio and then you look at those sector exposures and you really shouldn't have anything over 20%. You probably still end up with, with financials at about 20. But um, um, it's a wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful combination of things. No, it is. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, you will want to take a look, you know, and, and see that, you know, where and how. And maybe you do want to have a slight overweight. I'm, I'm less of an indexer, admittedly, as, as well. Right? I'm, I'm actually very much an anti-indexer in a lot of ways. And so the, <laughs> the way I look at it in, in some form is, is that when you look at the easy example, again, is Alberta or Canada, right? To get away from that, you know, 30-odd percent of financials plus the 20-odd percent energy plus the other 15, 18 percent, mm -hmm. you know, uh, commodity, base metal type uh, type indices, uh, type uh, sectors, then how do you construct something? You talked about no health care, essentially, aside from a couple cannabis companies and some senior living, you know, uh, uh, REITs, there, there really <laughs> isn't much of a, a health care scene at all, right? So where do you search in for Canada, that, yeah. right? So you do want to kind of look for the United States. And maybe if you want to actually bring it up, even in the United States, it's not a, a significant portion of that so you do want to potentially want to look at adding on uh, into uh, individual names or some satellite positions as someone would call it mm -hmm. um, to in order to kind of uh, bring up though the, the exposure to such sectors um, one thing I, I wanted to you know talk about as well with that is that when you look at you know whether you're a depositor base or uh, a shareholder base um, I, I talked a little bit about partnerships and, and, and how you need to have everybody sort of on the same page. And yes, there's some existential things that came into place with, with the, the VC world uh, with Silicon Valley. But in short, I think with any business, you, you do want to have good customers, right? You want those customers still there because you are providing them a service and they are providing you a business. And mm -hmm. um, there's been some good studies um, out there, um, a, a lot of good uh, positional pieces in regards to what they might consider a quality shareholder. Uh, and you can take that a step back and say even like a quality um, customer. What are, who are businesses that have good quality customers or good quality sales? You know, some people might consider that to be the government or some arm of the government, right? That if you are able to be a government uh, supplier, that contract's probably gonna get, is probably going to get paid, 
right? Uh, if you are uh, owning, say, a building that has a lot of uh, doctors, for example, right? Pretty good odds that you're going to get your rent. Right. Uh, so who are good quality customer, uh, customers, you know, if you want to peel the onion a little bit, but also for you and I and for our clients as well as you want to also act as a good shareholder. Right. It's not just a mm -hmm. one way street where you're just investing your money in your, into a, in a company uh, in, directly or indirectly and hope that, you know, it goes up. Right. You yourself also have to, you know, this is the difference, I guess, between like buying a stock or buying a business. Right. Buying a ticker yeah. versus buying an operation. And if you treat your investments as you would say real ownership of a said business i own a slice of that business right then you'll probably want to be a little bit more tuned of what's going on or at least show that you are um a stakeholder or a business owner that is vested and you are wanting to see it grow in the long run and and so there's and you're not reacting to the just the share price you're not looking at the share price on a ticker screen whatever and re reacting to it but you actually understand it's a business that's right that you own that's right and maybe the market values it a little bit less today but if the business is sound why would you do anything about it right you know, do you want to have a wishy-washy friend that will sometimes come up with you and sometimes won't and just kind of, you're, you know, sort of non-committed or like, <laughs> no. They're, they're, it's, so likewise, do you want a wishy-washy uh, uh, pr uh, principal that is investing your, taking your money into their business? And likewise, as the business operator, do you want a wishy-washy uh, shareholder that is kind of like, you know, by, you know, that any given day may change their opinion on, on things, right? So um, a couple of things, and I'll, I'll include a show note, uh, a link into the show notes about it, but um, a quality shareholder, take a step back and think what a quality shareholder is, or even, you know, call it a quality depositor, quality partner, is that you want to have, generally speaking, a very long investment horizon. I think irrespective of whether you own an index fund or an individual equity or individual name, you're generally going to want to have a long horizon. If you're not, then you're going to be either like, you know, a, a trader, which we generally don't uh, espouse or recommend, uh, or you know, a transient shareholder, or even like an activist, where you're in it for a quick pop uh, and then you're out, right? I think you also need to combine that with conviction, right? And this is where some of that argument or that some of the thing is between an index where you're getting the broad exposure for the entire market, but or you want to have a little bit more focused concentration into one particular area, one particular sector, uh, or one particular name. Is that you generally want if you if you think that that is an enviable or a very good opportunity. You probably want to be at least a little bit overweight is the general thought right so you want to have if you have higher conviction then you're typically going to want to have a higher concentration and so if you it's not the proverbial all the eggs in one basket but to have at least a couple eggs in that basket and you're going to want to monitor that basket very very carefully right and so long-term shareholders generally tend to um, support companies for the long run the company also knows that they have a very solid base where they um you know can explain variances or vagaries of the business cycle and, mm -hmm. and also maybe even in the future coming to say oh you know what we're looking into some additional financing we've done well thus far would you want to continue being uh, uh you know in, investing into our future um, uh growth plans for example right so that 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 mix of conviction and horizon large conviction large long time horizon ends up being what i you know what these uh, reports call a high quality shareholder if you have a very talking low, like yeah go ahead so you're, I was gonna say you're talking like Warren Buffett in some ways, right? Like you know, he's that's an interesting contrast. Reading, though, his, right? reading his shareholder letters, yeah, very much so. He espouses all this, right? And but when you took yep. it, when you look at Berkshire Hathaway, like the, the, the organization as a whole, it's one name. But you know, iron, mm -hmm. you know, when you peel back the layers, it has a multitude of different holdings, right? It owns twenty percent of Occidental Petroleum now. It owns an entire railroad uh, railway in the United States. It owns the, one of the largest insurers in, in the world, so on and so forth. Seas Candy, you know, mm -hmm. they um some of the utilities that, that are run in Alberta, the transmission lines are owned by and, Berkshire. Yeah, and Buffett, when he talks about these companies in his shareholder letters, you get that same sort of feeling. <clears throat> he's talking about them as businesses, and yes. he's like a 
he's he's uh, obviously there's those companies that you mentioned that he owns outright. Yeah. They, those companies never have to worry about you know ups and downs of the market. Nor does nor does Warren Buffett. Exactly. You know, maybe they do their own valuations of those companies internally, but they're really concerned about that business over the long term. And the other thing, what you were saying earlier about wishy-washy uh, investors, um, I think also kind of plays into kind of his feeling about investors. And you know, Warren Buffett does a lot of in the last couple of years now. They've done a lot of share buybacks, mm-hmm. and he talks about all the the, the positives of, of share buybacks and so forth. But one thing he, he mentions is what he likes about it is he puts the offer out there. The company puts the tender offer out there, and only the wishy-washiest of investors in Berkshire Hathaway stock take it. Are going to so submit their shares the, for money? Yes. The they get hands. rid of the weak hands and they the keep hands. the strong hands. Or like, as I said a few years ago, the diamond hands and the, uh, what do they call them? Paper hands and diamond hands. So you, you then end up with more diamond hand investors in your company. And you as a shareholder, uh, I think, would appreciate having another diamond hand holder because then you're not, you mm-hmm. have the same uh, outlook. And also, you also know that your other partners are likewise in a similar mindset, which, you know, and that removes one additional variable uh, of potential uncertainty in the future. Um, and, indeed, yes. you know, and some of the best, you know, let's, you know, let's let's look at active mutual funds. Some of the best long-term performing active funds, um, and you know, they are few and far between. I'll say that as an mm-hmm. indexer. <laughs> but the ones that do that are pretty successful are the ones that really limit um, access to their funds. Uh, there are fund companies that uh, don't even allow retail investors into them at all, mm-hmm. um, and that even get really uh, particular in, in terms of which advisors they allow to use their funds. Mm-hmm. Where if an advisor is constantly trading in and out, they'll just shut that fund down. Uh, to them. that advisor, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, uh, and that is, you know, if I was investing in those funds, I feel good knowing that the other people investing in that fund aren't going to trade in and out. They trade in and out; it causes tax problems for my clients, for one, uh, because that fund has to sell underlying holdings to make up cash, which creates capital gains for the surviving shareholders. Um, but also, if if I know that that fund company, you know, doesn't have wishy-washy investors and is more constantly taking on new ones and keeping them long term, uh, the the outcome is better for all those investors. As a whole. And I think, yes, so like the last week has given us a, a really relevant or recent experience in the sense that where you can have, quote unquote, paper hand, you know, stakeholders and, and what that in a worst case scenario can, can turn into results in. And whereas you have uh, a company like uh, a conglomerate such as Berkshire Hathaway, who, who has uh, leadership. Uh, not just Bert, uh, Warren Buffett, but Charlie Munger, and also kind of like the, the second in command and the other uh, portfolio managers that are very much think, think of that way, uh, think of their investments in a similar manner. And, and that gives a lot of consistency and also confidence and not in, in both directions within the, the mm-hmm. investment itself, the companies, but also in the companies in their shareholders and knowing that they're all sort of uh, aligned and on, and on the same page and they're constantly dealing with um, things that might happen on a quarter-to-quarter basis. They're thinking into a multi-year, multi-decade uh, sort of uh, outlook. So it, it's just something as, as, a, as an investor that I, I look for. And, and now I've actually kind of looked into it a little bit more deeply. And, and these are some of the things where you can look into filings and some of the, uh, uh, the statements out there to see who are sort of the diamond-hand investors out there, who are the diamond-hand mm-hmm. uh, folks and what are their qualities in order also what are the type of uh, companies or, or investments that they are in and so that you have a certain alignment if you choose to be a similar type of shareholder and I think for most of us considering a longer time frame or t- longer time horizon and our, our expectations for the future that uh, we should also try to, to do our best to kind of emulate that long-term business owner mentality as opposed to kind of trade in and out of um, you know business cycle cyclical variations right it, they happen and there may be some adjustments on the side that need to be done uh, but as a whole um, you know good quality investments good quality shareholders tend to do well together over the long term and over you know not just over one week or one year right over the long term so um, 
mm-hmm. it gives me some perspective to take a look at and re- revisit some of the key ideas or the key holdings that I, I prefer and, and do they actually reflect some of that uh, um, that mentality that I just talked about. One last thing about Berkshire, it's interesting though, like you can have a one single ticker, ticket item, you talked about the total in, in the total market index, right? You know, you can have one line item in there in your account say for example Berkshire and realize that you actually have a very wide diversity of businesses underneath that whereas you could have an account with 10 or 12 different names and to kind of go back to my energy example uh, before you're actually really not as diversified with 20 different names uh, versus one and so the number of investments actually is not a real good uh, proxy for diversification that's another way to look at things as well and that account sometimes looks really boring like clients find it boring too they look at their statement there's one line it's up and down down more recently, but uh, yeah, you, you just you have to know what you're invested in too. You know, this conversation I have with, with clients too, especially in volatile markets, is yeah. you know you, you can't just look at your your statement, see one thing is down, freak out about it. Mm-hmm. Know what you're invested in, and if you know that one line contains ten thousand companies, if you own the, the the world total market index, that's what you pretty much own. Mm-hmm. Ten thousand companies, the entire world, in one line in your portfolio, that excites me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> having that much in one thing, but... Uh, that's a lot of shareholder meetings uh, to go to, potentially. <laughs> well, that's the idea. Which is why you have the index, you're, right? If you're a so passive you do investor, that. you don't that's do right. that stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Shall we uh, call it there? A good discussion here about uh, indexing, or sorry, not indexing, but uh, diversification and uh, and uh, continuing the continuing story of um, the, the banking sector in the U.S. So we'll see what next week holds. Undoubtedly, there'll be updates uh, from uh, seven days from now as well, just as there were updates uh, from seven days ago. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Any views discussed in this podcast are those of the presenters or any guests and not necessarily those of Canaccord Genuity Corp. Statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views expressed are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial circumstances, or general need of any individual organization or institution. Investing in equities is not guaranteed, values change frequently, and past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Investors cannot invest directly in an index. Index returns do not reflect fees, expenses, or sales charges. Please do not hesitate to contact us should you want to know more about anything discussed in this podcast. CG Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investor Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.